0: So there's a Hawaii-based photographer named Diana Kim. And she began photographing homeless people on the streets. And her hope was to, uh, through storytelling, to restore the humanity um, of the homeless. And she has a photo book called The Homeless Paradise. And in it she says this. I gravitated towards the homeless because in some ways I identified with their struggle. I knew what it meant to be discarded to be neglected, and to not have the stability and economic freedom I wanted. Overall, I understood their struggle because I had struggled in the same way. Diana had a hard life growing up, and when she was five, her father left her family. And so it was her and her mom, and they, they would bounce from place to place in search of a permanent home. Sometimes that meant they stayed with friends, sometimes relatives, Sometimes just parked in a car for the night. But eventually, her and her mom found their way, and she became a humanitarian photographer. But one day, while she was out photographing the homeless, her worlds collided. And while she was taking these photos, she looked through the viewfinder, and for the first time in over 25 years, she saw her father right there in the viewfinder. Her father, the man who she remembered abandoning her as a child was now homeless, unwashed, unkempt, dressed in rags, worn thin from a bitter life, and worst of all, he didn't even recognize her, he didn't recognize his own daughter. You can imagine the emotion that she felt in that moment. you can imagine all the questions, all the thoughts. and as she made her way towards him, she found ...the courage to call out to him. She called out to him and he didn't look up. She called out again, he didn't turn around. And you can imagine the the pedestrians on the streets, they, they see this scene unfolding. And some people kind of stop to figure out what's going on. And then she describes what happens next. The vast emptiness between us was broken by a woman who approached me and said, don't bother... He's been standing there for days. Part of me wanted to scream at this woman and the world for being so callous. I wanted to yell that he was my father and she was a heartless person not to care. But I realized that none of that would change the circumstances. So instead of screaming at her, I faced her and said, I have to try. Now, why did she want to scream at this woman? Why did she feel this impulse to rebuke this pedestrian? Was it simply that this homeless man was her father? Well, certainly that's part of it. But I think there's more to it than that. See, the whole reason Diana was out there photographing the homeless was to restore humanity to the homeless. To use storytelling as a way to soften calloused hearts to the unhoused. And as the story unfolds, and it's a beautiful story, over the next couple of years, she fought through her own pain of abandonment. She fought through the difficulty of her father's mental illnesses. She fought through her own anger to be able to forgive him. And she fought fought for her father to see his humanity restored. Here's a picture of them years later. He doesn't even look like the same guy, right? There they are, joined together again. And speaking about her restored relationship with her father, she says, Every day is a gift. Some days are more challenging than others, but seeing my father in the flesh is a constant reminder of the strength of the human spirit and how precious life is. Friends, where does that deeply rooted human belief that life is precious come from? Where does that come from why is every single person regardless of station age gender ethnicity tribe nation party or any other identity attaching label you want to give someone why is every single person valuable worthwhile and deserving of dignity why why do we feel the gut level drive to live with a sense of meaning and purpose. Why is it that when we see the first picture of that man who has just been worn thin, why do we look at that and say there's something wrong with it? Why are our hearts rejoicing when we see him restored? Why? I think the Bible answers these questions in our text this morning. Today as we look at Genesis chapters 1, verses 26 and 31, and Genesis 2, 4 through 8, we're going to look at... The creation of humanity. We flew over it last week. We're going to settle into it today. We're going to learn about who we are and why we're here. Two of the biggest questions humanity has ever asked. Who are we and why are we here? So first we're going to answer the question of who we are. We're going to explore what it means to be made in the image of God. The Bible tells us the first thing about humans is that we're made in the image of God. So humanity, fundamentally at our core, we are image bearers. And that provides the basis, the only foundation of why every single human is deserving of value, dignity, and respect. So we're going to look at who we are. Second thing we're going to look at is why we're here. It's going deep today, folks. We're doing some philosophy. We're going to answer the question of why every single human being is made for meaning and purpose. That did not happen because of evolution. It happened because God gave us a sense of meaning and purpose. And life is more than mere survival and taking up space. We were made to live with a sense of meaning and purpose as we fulfill what the Bible calls the cultural mandate. We'll unpack that today. So let's start together in verse 26 as we answer the first question of who we are. Look with me and the words will be on the screen. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And going down to verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created him. Now at this point in this first creation narrative, we are at the second part of the sixth day. The first part of the sixth day was the creation of of animals and now we've gone into this second movement of day six. And we've seen in days one, two, and three, the forming of the earth. We talked about how God establishes the forms of the earth. And then uh, as God uh, created the earth and made it habitable, that's where we get the the land and the, the separation and the boundaries of the ocean. And then in days four to six, God is filling the earth. So he's taking the forms he's made and now he's filling them. And he fills it with creatures to live in harmony And the glory of God. And at this point, up until this point, there has been a consistent pattern uh, to the filling and the forming. We see this pattern, and God said, and then what? And it was so. You see this happen over and over. God said, God speaks, and then creation comes about. It was so. And not only that, but as God fills the earth with different forms of life, Moses tells us that each one were created according to its kind. So the the livestock was created each according to its kind, and the, the creepy things that freak us out when we walk into a room, each one of those was created and formed according to its kind. And we see God creating different taxonomies as creation multiplies, and it will do so according to this pattern established by God for each creature according to its kind. But did you notice a change? When we get to verse 26, the pattern changes. Anytime in scripture, when there's a pattern established, when that pattern changes, it's meant for us to go, hey, clue in here. you got to remember, this is an oral culture, culture. They're not writing this down. So you use these kind of, of listening devices. You say things in patterns. You do things so that you can memorize it. And Moses now breaks that pattern, and it's meant for us to clue in. We have God speak in the plural for the first time. That's the first pattern-breaking change. As the Bible unfolds, we'll learn that our God... has one divine nature with a plurality... exactly three persons. The Father, the Son... And the Holy Spirit. I unpacked this in much more detail last week. And so if you missed it, you need to catch up on that in the podcast. We did almost a whole sermon on this um, in our Apostles' Creed uh, sermon series. That message was called God the Father Almighty. You can go back and listen to that. But for now we need to keep moving. But we see this, this Trinitarian God create man in his image. There's a crescendo Happening here, it's that point in the symphony. We've reached this climactic moment. It's powerful. You feel it. You know that moment happens in that piece of music, and and it's emotive, right? That's what's happening here in this moment of creation. And God says something about man and woman that He does not say about any other creature. It is not egocentric of us to to notice the fact that we have a different place in creation. That's not arrogant. That's just a received identity from God who he says about us like he does no other creature. You are made in my image after my likeness. Where other creatures were made according to their kinds... Humanity is made according to the kind or the image and the likeness of God. No other creature, no other part of creation can say that. I know we take road trips to the Grand Canyon. We take these scenic drives right now. People will flood to New England just to see our leaves. Right? Right? To marvel at it. And it is marvelous. But there is not a single rolling hill with the beauty of the fall foliage in New England. There is no depth and beauty and magnificence of of any mountaintop in the world that compares to humanity. I mean, friends, you can look around the room right now, and God is saying, All around you are my most prized and marvelous creations. You don't have to drive to the Grand Canyon to see the wonderful works of God. You can literally right now just look around. Who are we? Human beings are fundamentally image bearers. We are created in the image of God. Now you might be asking, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be an image bearer, to be created in the image of God? I think it means at least three things. There's a lot. There's whole books written on this. I've got a sermon, okay? Number one, the first thing we learn, we are created. We are created. Now, it should be obvious, but as we find in our culture, we ought, we have, we're really good at missing the obvious. To be created in the image of God first means we're created. We are creatures, which means we have a creator, We are not self-existent nor self-created. We did not will our own creation. But neither are we cosmic accidents accountable to no one. We were created by the willful intention of a thoughtful creator. And as such, we are his. Psalm 100 verse 3. The psalmist says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. And therefore, we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. There's an intuitive principle that everyone knows. If you create it, it's yours, right? Everybody gets that. If you make something, guess what? You have creative rights over it. In fact, if someone takes what you've created, what do we do? We sue them. Right? Because there's this intuitive reality. If I've made it, if I came up with it, it's mine. And I have the rights over it. Trevin Wax at the Gospel Coalition writes this, Cultural forces conspire to fool us into thinking that we create our own meaning in life and that we determine our value and destiny. For this reason, we resist the notion that there is someone above us to whom we are accountable. We Hate the idea that our freedom is in any way restricted by our limits as creatures or by moral constraints. God is God and we are not. He goes on to say whether we acknowledge him and receive his truth or we ignore him and reject his truth. That's all we can do. We are either receivers or rebels. That is the choice before us. There is no middle ground. Friends, we are created and therefore we have a creator and we are accountable to him. He made us, he owns us. We are his and as such we are responsible and accountable to him as our creator. And you either receive that as good news this morning or you will spend your life rejecting that. There is no middle ground between those two. So the first thing we see is we are created. But number two, we're not merely created. We are valuable. Number two, the implication of being made in the image of God is we are valuable. Now, I want you to remember, I've tried to set the context for this this book. We have to remember that the first people who would be hearing this, remember, this would be the Israelites who've been delivered out of 400 years of slavery they, they're in their rear view mirror is Egypt, and in their foreground is they're headed to the promised land and this is the people who are hearing this for the first time. See, in the ancient Near Eastern worldview, it was understood that people could bear the image of God, but only royalty. Only royal kings and pharaohs and highest leaders bore the image of God. So pharaohs and kings were made in the image of God because they were reigning and ruling and representing God. But never in a million years would the common everyday person assume that they were made in the image of God. I think as Christians, we often, we've often we heard that phrase before and we take it for granted. But I want you to try to uh, hear this the way the Israelites would have heard this. They've never heard that concept before, that the everyday person could be made in the image of God, let alone a people who've been enslaved for multiple generations, going back as far as they can remember. Think about it. How many people in your generation and your history can you name back? Some of you can name one. You know, like I know who my my, my grandparents were. Some of you can go great-grandparents. Maybe less of you, great-great. There's a certain point where you're like, and I don't know after that anymore, right? As far back as any of these people could remember, they were enslaved. Imagine hearing that for the first time. Their only value has been in the labor they've provided. And Moses just told them, you, yes, you, yes, you former Hebrew slaves, every single one of you, in fact, every single human being bears the image of God and is given the task to reign, rule, and represent him just like those kings. This would have been scandalous in the ancient world. This would have been revolutionary. Not only that, listen to how Genesis 2 recounts the creation of the first man, Adam. In Genesis 1, it's like an overview. Genesis 2 is zooming down closer to look at it from a, a, a close-up and personal kind of way. Look what Genesis 2 says. And then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he formed. If you noticed, the rest of creation was by fiat, by spoken word. God speaks and it was so. But with the man, there's this personal forming of his frame. There's this intimate exchange between the creator and the created as God breathes the breath of life. One of my favorite pictures that I have is of me... And my first son, and I'm, and I'm holding him. I'm like a brand new dad. And I'm holding him this close. And we can feel each other's breath. It's a powerful image to me. Reminding me of, of new life for the first time. That's the image going on here. Is God breathes life into this first man. There's this intimate exchange between the creator and the created. That hasn't happened up until this point. And then what does God do? He gives man a home. And later we find out that God doesn't just want to give him a pen to live in. But he wants to dwell with him. All of creation testifies to the work of a creator. Paul tells us that by creation we can discern some of the invisible attributes of God. But of all creation, humanity... It's the only one that has been stamped with the image of God. God desires to dwell with us. It's amazing. And there's no limit to what a finite being can do to fully... And and though there is a limit to what a finite being can do to fully represent the infinite... And I know sin has crippled humanity now from accomplishing this beautiful mission. We might say that the, the image of God has been marred in man nonetheless... Humanity was created with the dignifying role of showing the world what God is like. God said, you know, it, it was common in that time period when a new king became king to make molded images of himself and have them Uh, put throughout all of uh, of their empire, right? There's not media happening. We do that today through television and social media, right? But in those days, that didn't exist, so they would create these statues. So that way, everywhere you went, you would see a reminder of who is king. Well, when God decided to do the same, he didn't create molten images. He created humanity and said, Everywhere you see another human being, you are seeing a representation of me. Part of my image is in them. And the moment you grasp that truth, the moment you let that truth percolate down from the intellect and the head down into the level of your soul, you immediately gain a sense of dignity, worth, and inestimable valuable value. That is why every single human being is inherently endowed with dignity, worth, and And value. If you have a materialistic or naturalistic or atheistic worldview, you believe that human beings and everything else is really just a matter of biological and chemical combustions of an accidental existence. And friends, if there is no God, then there is no value to anything except what we arbitrarily assign to things. And if we're just arbitrarily assigning value to things, guess what? We can arbitrarily take it away. We can always change our mind. If it's subjective, then it's subject to change. I'm not saying that naturalists or atheists don't believe that human beings have value... I'm just saying they have no basis for that belief. They're literally stealing that belief and value from our worldview. It's inherent in them, but they're not acknowledging where it comes from. The only basis for human dignity and value is that it's been given to us by our creator. The Christian story alone provides the basis for the belief that human beings are inherently valuable. That's why these verses in verse 26 are so important. God has stamped us with his image and that is his divine declaration that every single human life is sacred, precious from the moment of our conception to our very last breath. Listen, regardless of the situation, regardless of your status, regardless of uh, how smart you are, regardless of how much you can contribute to society, that is not the basis of your value and your worth. If you stop producing, if you stop becoming valuable to society, you do not lose your worth. This is the basis of why Christians should be declaring categorically and condemning every form Kind and degree of racism and ethnocentrism, we should be the loudest on this, guys, because we have the basis for why it's fundamentally basic. The issue of abortion for the Christian is not fundamentally a political issue. I know the issue has been politicized, but the issue itself is fundamentally an imago day issue human life from the moment of conception to our very last breath regardless of any situation you want to come up with is valuable now i'm not saying these issues don't have complexities to them they are wildly complex i'm not saying that figuring out questions of policy are easy because they're not Both of these issues have policies behind them and working outs in them that should be thoughtfully considered. And it's well beyond the scope of this sermon to address how we can solve these systemic problems of sin with solutions that are compassionate and personal. And that's not what the point of this sermon. What I am saying is that because humans are made in the image of God every single life, from the moment of conception to the final breath, is valuable and worth dignity, respect, and protection. I know there's a tenderness to all of these issues. There's personal stories behind every single one of these issues. Whether we're talking about racism or abortion, I know just those words are charged That may be a part of your past. It may even well be something you're struggling with right now. And so as your pastor, I am not trying to gloss over those things. And we can have time to cry and to sit and to listen and to hear and to affirm that God loves you no matter your past. All of that is well worth a conversation. But I would not be loving you if I did not tell you the truth from God's word. That every single life is precious. It just is. Not because I'm saying it is, but because God says it is. I think this is an incredibly beautiful truth that every human being is made in the image of God. But let me tell you something. It is incredibly inconvenient. Did you know that? I know we love to talk about every life has value and meaning. But get down into the actual workings with you people. It is very inconvenient. It is easy to say, hey, your life is valuable. It's much harder to be patient with you. It's inconvenient because now I have to see every single human being as made in the image of God. Therefore... No one is more important or deserving of my respect than any other person. So that customer service rep on the other end of the phone who couldn't care less about you, who may even be incompetent at their job, guess what? They bear the image of God. That person on the pike who just cut you off Guess what? They're an image bearer. You can't go ram their car. It's also illegal. But they too are deserving full dignity and respect. That homeless person right now huddled up on Main Street is deserving of your eye contact and conversation. That person who disagrees with you all the time Who just gets under your skin? It's like for whatever reason, they've made it their life's purpose to be devil's advocate against you and you alone. Yep. That person is deserving of your patience because they bear the image of God. Let's get real, guys. That person is gonna vote differently from you in a few days. And you just can't imagine how anybody could ever vote differently. You could not understand. How they could support that candidate. But guess what? Guess what? They deserve the benefit of the doubt because they too bear the image of God. That person who is culturally and ethnically different from you, guess what? They deserve your care and concern because they too bear the image of God. We could just keep on going. It means it will cost you time. It will cost you patience. It will cost you money. It means holding your tongue when you want to speak. Sometimes it means speaking up when you don't want to speak. It will mean treating them how you want to be treated, regardless if they will treat you the same way. So by way of application, as we consider all of those kinds of people... Who bear the image of God. I have two questions I want you to think on this week. The first one is this. Who is practically invisible to you? Are there groups of people or individuals. Whose issues or situations just don't cause a blip on your radar of concern. They've essentially become invisible to you. Or is there someone you'd wish would just go away your life would just be simpler easier your work week would just fly by if they would simply just go away could it be friends that God is calling you to see someone or a group of people for the first time to see them to hear them perhaps even to advocate for them who is invisible to you that's an Imago Day question the second one is this, who is merely instrumental to you? Are there people in your life who just serve a purpose and you forget that you're interacting with an image bearer? What I mean is instead of having a relational interaction with them, it is all transactional. They're simply there to provide a service for you. Now these questions aren't exhaustive, but I hope they get us thinking about how we treat and value others Because to be made in the image of God means we are valuable. All right, I'm going to speed up here. Number three, we are rulers. Verse 26 says, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We're created, we're valuable, but we're also rulers. God has given humans the responsibility to exercise, hear me, a responsible rule and reign on the earth. We are God's vice regents. Our authority to rule and exercise dominion is given to us as a gift by God. Now, we're going to unpack this a little bit more um, in in what we're to do in in the verses that follow. But right now, our right to rule is a God-given responsibility because we're made in the image of God. God is a ruler. We are rulers because we're made in his image. We are, in a sense, to continue the work of creation as we cultivate the earth into a habitat suitable for the thriving and flourishing of humanity and the rest of creation. Now that word dominion here, where man is given dominion, does not imply that we can reign and rule in an exploitative or irresponsible manner. People have misused this verse to pollute and terrorize the earth. That's not what we're talking about here. We are meant to represent the character of God. And God is fundamentally a caretaker. He's a giver. He's a gracious host. So our dominion is one of stewardship and responsibility. We are to take care of God's creation. Now the Christian worldview has to carefully navigate the tension between using the earth and its resources to live, to build societies, and abusing the earth for unmitigated pleasure and comfort. Again, this sermon is not about policy and how we do that. It's just providing the frameworks for those things. So listen, the work of environmental preservation has a place and I would say a foundation in the biblical worldview as well as culture building. We're to do both of these things. How we discern between the two when we decide to to stop doing something or to start doing something takes great wisdom and discernment. And because our ruling is a responsibility given to us by God... There's a moral responsibility to represent and, uh, God and rule rightly. We should be held accountable for how we exercise our reign and rule and dominion. And not only does God give us this responsibility and this gift of ruling, he also gives us a capacity for it. So not only does he give us the job of it, he gives us the capacity for it. Though we're not omnipotent, human beings are incredibly powerful creatures. Listen to John Frame. He says, Man is not omnipotent as God is, but he is able to accomplish amazing things by his physical strength, intellectual acuity, linguistic ability, and abilities that no animal can match. Friends, with these abilities and acuities, we are to exercise a responsible dominion over the earth. What that means is our physical strength Our relational capacity enables us to thoughtfully and powerfully build societies. I mean, just look at the world around us. It's incredible. Our ability to hear and to speak reflects that we're made in the image of a God who listens and speaks as well. And as the chapter unfolds and we go into chapter 2, we see that God speaks to Adam and Eve. He gives them directions. He tells them uh, some principles as they go about reigning and ruling over the earth. And they were supposed to listen to God, listen to his directions and obey the will of their maker. And they were, not, uh, they were not given the responsibility to rule according to their own design, right? God didn't say, hey, figure it out on your own. Do things the way you want to do. No, God gives them a design. But not only does God give us a design and the physical strength and intellectual acuity and linguistic abilities. Most importantly, God gives us his word So that we're not left in the dark to guess about his purpose and mission. And so even though that's been marred and and, and clouded, we still have God's word. And we can fulfill our call to rule in a manner that accords with God's design and brings glory to his name. That's what it means to be an image bearer. Human beings are complex creatures and we all have our own unique personalities. But at our core... Every single one of us in this room right now, we're made by our creator as image bearers. And so we're valuable and we have a responsibility to rule and reflect God's character. That's who we are. Now the second question, and this one will go by much quicker. Why are we here? Who we are and why are we here? Genesis 1, 28 to 31. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food and it was so And God concludes by looking and saying everything he had made, behold, it was very good evening and morning the sixth day. So God has just formed and filled the earth, and now we're given the same task. Did you see it there? In verse 28, God tells Adam and Eve to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. That's God saying form things. He also says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the filling part so God forms and fills humanity forms and fills we're made in the image of God and so it makes sense that we would have the same kind of forming and filling work did you notice God inviting us into his work of creation God does the things that only God can do and then God gives us a responsibility to extend his creation and though we don't create in the exact same way that God does our work resembles God's creative work Again, as we subdue and um, exercise dominion of the earth, it doesn't mean in in an exploitative kind of way. We don't exploit creation. We steward it responsibly. And our responsibility to fill and subdue the earth is sometimes called the cultural mandate. If you're looking to write things down, write that word down, the cultural mandate. This is where God says he blessed them and he said, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. It's a mandate because God commands the the man and the woman to do this. He doesn't say, hey, if you get around to it, it'd be great uh, if you could fill the earth with more human beings. It's not optional. Man and woman are not self-sovereigns. They serve under the authority of God. They're accountable to their maker. And so God tells them what to do. And it's his right and responsibility to do so. And this term, uh, cultural mandate, that word cultural conveys this idea of cultivation. In Genesis 2, 15, he describes the work of humanity like this. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden to do what? To work it and keep it. That word for work means to cultivate. It means to produce. That word for keep means to protect. And so God is saying, look, I want you to um, begin the work of cultivation here in the garden. But he says what? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So it wasn't meant to just be this little bitty garden. It was meant to, 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 to go beyond. It wasn't meant to end there. Another way to say it is what was started in the garden was meant to expand to the ends of the earth. The earth as it was created, formed, and filled by God was this world full of potential. Seven Mile, do you see that? Do you see that God had created something and then it's it, it just beaming with this potentiality as, as mankind is meant to, to, uh, to cultivate, build societies, build cultures that, uh, that, that declare and display the glory of God. Our first parents are given this purposeful and meaningful work to take all this rugged potential and make it a reality. To form and fill the earth where human Life And life all around could thrive and flourish. So what's involved in that? Well, for starters, humanity is given the task of filling the earth with more humans. God is not going to populate the earth by mass creation. He's given Adam and Eve roles to play in procreating and populating the earth. Now this should be obvious. But again, our cultural moment... The most blatantly obvious things are obscured. Man needs woman to fulfill the task of filling the earth. Likewise, woman needs man to populate and fill the earth. Multiplication does not happen without a man and a woman. It is biologically impossible. And here we see... God establishing a pattern and a design for human multiplication. Our thriving and flourishing is directly tied to living according to God's good order. We're going to unpack that more next week. But not only does God's cultural mandate involve procreation, it also involves the work of civilization and culture making. This includes farming and ranching, building and preserving, education and research, writing and singing. It's the arts, the sciences, literature, so that life becomes more than mere survival, but enjoyable as well. This includes doctors, structural engineers... Custodians, stay at home moms, educators, occupational therapists, IT managers, business entrepreneurs, adhesive engineers. I got you. Nursing home care providers, little league coaches, bankers, electricians, pastors, dental hygienists, receptionists, restaurant servers, and every career and volunteer position you can think of. All of it is involved in this. Seven Mile, let me hear me right now. Work is not a result of humanity's fall into sin. We often think that work is a result of the fall. Did you hear the work happening before the fall? We haven't gotten to Genesis 3 yet. And God has given man and woman work to do. Work existed at the sixth day of creation. It existed in the garden and at the deepest level. This cultivation is meant to display the glory of God as we worship and enjoy communion with him. It's important to note this cultural mandate is given to all humanity. This is not exclusive to Christians. It's given to Adam and Eve as our first parents, as representatives of all humanity. God blessed them and commends them in their work. Even after the fall, the cultural mandate is repeated again after the flood. Now, I know our work now is frustrated by thorns and thistles. We'll get to that in Genesis 3. Sin adds pride and greed, mistakes, frustration into the mix. But the cultural mandate to fill the earth with culture making and more humanity is a pre-fall and post-fall task. It's given to all humanity, not just Christians. Now to be sure, if you are in Christ... You will understand the cultural mandate in a way that is beyond just the everyday person. You'll understand its design and scope and purpose. You'll understand that we're meant to do it to live to the glory of God. Christians will also know that the ultimate trajectory of the cultural mandate is the great commission as we make disciples of all nations. But fundamentally, culture making, society building, responsibly stewarding the earth is a task common to all humanity. And when God tells them this task, he blesses them. He speaks blessing over them. And he gives them meaningful work as they partner with God to extend his work of creation. That's why every single person you've ever met knows down in their gut that they were created for meaning and purpose. So your work, assuming it's lawful. And not a direct violation of God's moral order is a blessing for you, given to you by God for the cultivation and the culture building of humanity. So think about it like this. Whatever your profession or area of volunteering, whatever your area of domain, it's like you've been given this small plot of land to work and keep and to grow something. Your job is to work that ground. Whatever your area of domain is. And to cultivate it so that it grows and produces crops that feed and help others. Again, you may not be a farmer, but whatever your role is, we're meant to add value to the culture around us. In that sense, all work is sacred before God. Everybody's work in here matters because in God's design, all of our work is interwoven in such a way that together it enables humanity and all of life to thrive and flourish. People often think that it's only my job that's sacred because I'm a pastor. My work is not any more sacred work than making structures that won't fall down on people. That's sacred work. Ensuring that this uh, beam will carry the load is sacred work, enabling humanity and his culture to thrive and flourish. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Insert your job there. Do it all to the glory of God. Friends, good, honest work builds God's kingdom. In his book, Work Matters, Tom Nelson writes, one of the primary ways we tangibly love our neighbors is to do excellent, God-honoring work in our various vocations. We talk a lot about loving our neighbors. Part of the way we love our neighbors is by doing good, God-glorifying work. So this week, whether you're a teacher, a physician, an attorney, a businessman, or a plumber, whatever your job role is, your job is to do your work for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. That's why we're here. We're built for meaning and purposeful work. So who are we? Image bearers. God, in some mysterious way, has stamped his image in us, and therefore we are valuable. Your life right now is precious. What do we do? We do meaningful and purposeful work as we build God's kingdom for his glory and the glory of our neighbors. And though the image of God has been marred because of the fall, though our work is frustrated, you will go into work tomorrow with frustrations. There will be things that grow up to try to choke out your work. But those of us who believe in Christ can take heart that God is restoring his image in us to be conformed to the image of Christ, that there is coming a day when the weeds of sin will be pulled out completely. And through our union with Christ, we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's your trajectory believer in Christ, you will bear the full image of the man of heaven. And so between now and then, God is working day by day to restore the image of God in you from one degree of glory to another. So don't lose heart. Though we're broken, though our work is frustrated, God is actively working to bring about restoration. Let's pray.